In the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. The Gospel text we just heard is a strangely slow interlude in Mark's Gospel. Mark rarely spends so much time on just one event. He typically writes with a pointed urgency, dropping words and phrases like, immediately, right away, at once. And he never lets Jesus stay very long in one place. This quick narrative pace is why our mountaintop story may strike us as strange. Here we are trying to keep up with the action when suddenly Mark stops the pace and makes a shift from a story defined by urgency to a story defined by details. We are given details of time, six days later, of space, a high mountain apart, and of color, dazzling white beyond earthly possibility. Therefore, given this abrupt change of style, we must ask the why question. Why did Mark find it necessary to stop things for this moment on the top of this mountain? We find hints on either side of this mountain story. Let's consider what happens immediately before, right before Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain, he gives them all a reality check about what they should expect during the rest of their time together. Mark writes, Jesus began to teach the disciples that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering, be rejected and killed, and then rise again. This honesty marks an important moment. It's the first time in Mark's gospel that Jesus speaks openly to his disciples about what is to come as a result of who he is as our boundary-crossing Messiah. It's the first time Jesus lets his closest followers know about the pain and heartache that's right around the corner. So this tough conversation about the cost of faithfulness is what comes immediately before the mountaintop moment. And then right after, we again hear Jesus telling the disciples what to expect. The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. Yet placed right between those stark sermons is this slow interlude on the mountain. First, let's look at the moment. We know from earlier stories in scripture that God often hides God's presence in an envelope of light in order to protect us from being overwhelmed by God's glory. Think burning bush and pillar of fire. And that happens again in this story. But this time, God lets all of God's glory loose in Jesus. It's as if God took the glory off of God's own face and tucked it inside Jesus, making him one big light, shining from every pore, dazzling in his brightness, causing everyone and everything around him to reflect that divine brilliance. The theological word for it is transfiguration. It's God's way of saying about Jesus, look, it's really me. See for yourselves. 
And then to drive the point home even more, God places Moses and Elijah, the great lawgiver and the great prophet, beside the luminous Jesus. The two of them are our visual clues that this Jesus, this shining, glorious Jesus, is indeed the fulfillment of all the historical promises God had made with God's covenant people throughout the generations. So now let's listen to the moment. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. These words ring in our ears because we've heard them before. We as readers overheard God say those words to Jesus at his baptism. Yet here on this mountaintop, God speaks these words publicly for the sake of all the disciples. This one, this same one who has told you that he will suffer, be killed, and then be raised up, this one is my beloved child. This one is your Messiah. Listen to him. The poetic theological imagination employed in this mountaintop moment leads us to some questions. Why would God choose to give the gift of transfiguration vision to those disciples? Furthermore, why then, in the middle of tough sermons about the cost of being faithful, did God hope that vision might shape their lives as they continue to follow Jesus, following him down off the mountain and then through the betrayal, the suffering, his death? Did God hope the memory of this transfiguration vision might give them courage for what was to come? And then why did Mark choose to offer that gift to us? I imagine that one clue as to why becomes known throughout the rest of the story. After that jaw-dropping moment of light and holy voice, things quickly went back to normal. Mark states the return to normalcy with a matter-of-fact bluntness. When the disciples looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. After that, glorious, shining moment full of blinding possibility and divine promise had passed. The disciples looked around and realized that all they had left was just the worn, tired, flesh and bone face of Jesus. The same face they saw day after day. No more light, no more glory, no, no more holy voice, just Jesus. And then, as if to add insult to injury, Jesus made all of them head right back down off the mountain. Down back into all the brokenness, into all the despair, all the need of the world. Back to the hunger, back to the thirst, back to the hurting and the wounded and the despairing, back to the disbelieving, back to the cynical, back to, that's just the way it is. But we might contemplate if, as the disciples walk back down into the trenches of their lies, if they decided they would intentionally remember what they had just experienced together. Did they decide they would help each other remember that transfiguration vision on that mountain? 
Each day, were they going to pause and remember what they had experienced or not? It seems to me that they initially chose the not. For when we read the rest of Mark's gospel, it sure seems as though they forgot the whole thing. Judas betrays him. Peter denies him. They all run from him. As we read the rest of their stories, it appears that fear and defeat shape their lives much more powerfully than the memory of the brilliance and shining divine presence revealed on the mountain. Their transfiguration visions seem to be completely overshadowed and almost overcome by the deep trenches and despair of a Good Friday world. At least for a good while, the disciples chose not to remember. But those first disciples were not the only ones to fight that battle, were they? We face it too. Every single day, when our alarm goes off and the heart monitors beep and the oxygen tanks whir and the children cry and the cell phone rings and the refrigerator is empty and there is no wood and the sharp wind is cold and the sky is gray, every single day we, like those first disciples, are called to decide what memories, what stories, what story, whose story will shape our lives and the way we live them. Every single day, we decide what kind of a world we live in. Will we choose to make the claim that we live in a transfiguration world? Will that be the choice we make? Or will we choose to assert, either on purpose or out of apathy, that we are, live in a world where everything is flat and exactly as it seems, with no light, no holes, no fullness, no promise of divine presence, and certainly no honest hope? One gift Mark gives you and me with his account of the strange transfiguration story is to point out that every single day you and I have the option of making a different choice than the one those first disciples made. We don't have to so quickly forget what God has shown us in Jesus. We can choose to remember and lean into God's promise of a porous, God-leaking, divine, hope-infused world, and let that faith-based reality shape us and how we act and think each day. Or we can choose to do as the first disciples seem to do. We can choose to quickly forget about any promise of glory or newness or divine presence. We can choose to only see a world where everything is flat, with no light, no holes, no fullness. Friends, that is our battle every single day. That is our choice every single day. Whose story, what memory will shape our lives? Will we choose to live in a porous transfiguration kind of world or not? That choice is ours to make every single day day, and on some days, every single hour. Amen.